This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 227th episode, we have an interview with Dr. Alida Bayuel, who recently authored that amazing paper about a dinosaur that died with an egg inside of it, which is pretty amazing. And rather than trying to cover it ourselves, why not have her explain it? <laughs> we also have Dinosaur of the Day in size of Osaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But before we get into all of that, we would like to thank some of our patrons by name who help us keep our podcast going. This week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Cody, Joaquin, Jeb from Arkansas, Aiden James, Albertosaurus, and Alan. And Alan just joined, so thank you very much. Yay, thank you. Yeah, thank you to everybody. Our community's growing and it's pretty awesome. So if you want to join this group of people, then check out our page, patreon.com slash inodino. We offer some cool rewards. Our Discord server is really bumping. Yep. And when we get to the 160 patron mark, which is... Only, I think, 39 away now. Oh, boy. Sabrina has to finish her <laughs> drawing. <laughs> Pressure's on. So that we can send it out in various forms to different levels. I like the concept. We'll see about the execution. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be really great, guys. You should all join so you can get it. <laughs> Trying to set expectations low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the 120 mark, I had to make that noise panel, which I still haven't quite finished. Now at the 160 level, you have to make something. Yep. It all evens out. It's going to be a really cool piece of art, though. So definitely, if you want in on that, join our Patreon. Jumping into the news, we have a new dinosaur, specifically a Therizinosaur. Oh, one of the extra weird ones. It is. Some of my favorites. And thanks to James for sharing this one with us. It was written by Shi Yao and others and published in Scientific Reports. And they named the new Therizinosaur Lingyuanosaurus sahadangensis. And both the genus and species refer to where it was found, which is, quote, the town of Sihadang within the county-level city of Lingyuan, end quote. Of Lingyuanosaurus, they found several vertebrae and ribs, 
part of each humerus, I should say both humeri, because <laughs> there's only two, some finger bones and a good portion of the hips, as well as a complete right femur, an incomplete left tibia, and some other fragments. So it's kind of interesting because a lot of times it'll be like a full arm, but just one arm. But this time it's like parts of both arms, parts of both legs, kind of a weird clump of bones to find together. They refer to it as a small therizinosaur, which I think is putting it mildly. They measured its femur at only 20 centimeters or eight inches long and estimate its weight at only 12 kilograms or 26 pounds. Cute. Yeah, very small. I don't know if it was cute. <laughs> well, it's cute size. I don't know if any therizinosaur is really cute. They're so weird looking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess there could be a cuteness to their kind of like an ugly duckling situation going on. Oh, that's harsh. <laughs> Have you seen a therizinosaur? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty weird. They got long necks, big old heads, wide hips. Very strange. For comparison, though, therizinosaurus was probably several tons. So this one being, you know, under 50 pounds, very small. It was almost certainly still growing given its small size, as well as the fact that its vertebrae weren't fused. But it appears that, quote, all of the bones are well ossified. So it was probably older than just a hatchling. So we're talking, you know, I'm, I'm guessing maybe like a year old in that ballpark. Unfortunately, they didn't do a histology. So they didn't look for lags or some of the other details in the bone that might help us figure out exactly how old it is. So there, it's, there's a chance that it's older and it's just like a very, very small therizinosaur in case they weren't weird enough. Why not have a little tiny herbivore <laughs> with big claws? <laughs> hey, dinosaurs come in all shapes and sizes. I kind of hope that it was like near an adult size. That would be pretty awesome, even though it might be unlikely. They did do some phylogenetics on Lingyuanosaurus, and they found that its closest relatives are the other Asian Therizinosaurus, Jianchangosaurus and Beipiaosaurus, which I think we've talked about both of those before. They're not really therizinosaur scale. Therizinosaurus is the biggest of all therizinosaurs. And much like those two, they found a couple of claws, but they're actually a little bit more curved than you might expect. So therizinosaurus has those iconic, super long, like Freddy Krueger sort of knife fingers. <laughs> but the other therizinosaurs tend to have a little bit more curve to them. And these ones are, are quite curved. They're not quite like dromaeosaur level of curve, but they're still pretty curved. So more of a typical sort of claw. Unfortunately, they didn't find all that much of the hand. They basically just found a couple of claws, which are probably the third and fourth finger. And depending the way you number fingers, it might not have had a first finger because we kind of always assume that they're like the five digits. And some of them, if they lose the first one, we still count the first one as the second digit, just because it's like you want to be consistent about which finger is which so that you can compare more directly to other dinosaurs. But between these two fingers that we found, the third finger is about 50% longer than the fourth finger. And it is quite a long claw. It's about 75 millimeters or three inches long, which is more than a third of the length of its tibia. So that's like its lower leg, just its claw is like a third that length. So with us, it would be more than like if your entire finger was a claw, maybe more like if your entire hand was a claw in terms of scale and your overall body. So 
pretty large, <laughs> proportionally speaking, claws. Yeah. And again, we still don't really know why Therizinosaurus had these massive claws. The best guess is that it was for self-defense, but it's just so strange that an herbivore has these massive claws. It's from the early Cretaceous, and that was really all they hazarded to say about it. They specifically said, this paper is not about the age of the dinosaur. <laughs> so somewhere in the 145 to 100 million years ago range, pretty broad range. Therizinosaurus was from the latest Cretaceous at 66 million years ago. So unsurprisingly, Lingyuanosaurus is quite a bit less derived. So it's got some of the more basal traits that you might expect to see, including those more curved claws. But it does have some other more derived features because, you know, this whole evolution thing is always messy and nothing's ever simple. For example, it appears to be slower than some of its ancestors, given that its femur is longer than its tibia. So it looks like Lingyuanosaurus was already getting pretty slow, even though it wasn't all that big. Oh, <laughs> I wonder what the advantage, if any, of that is. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you'd assume that it didn't need to be fast anymore. Maybe those huge claws were there. Enough of a deterrent. <laughs> yeah, just like a defense mechanism. Back away. Yeah. Now I don't need to run away anymore. On guard. Fully fight side of the fight or flight mechanism. Hmm. I don't know. It's pretty interesting. Or maybe it did get really big and we just found a baby. So it's misleading. Yeah. And up next, we have to talk about the new specimen of T-Rex, which was published. So this one was written by Scott Persons, Philip Curry, and Gregory Erickson. We've interviewed two-thirds of those authors, and it was published in the Anatomical Record. It's been accepted, although it's not through the final edits, but since everything is already publishing about this, I feel like we need to talk about it too. <laughs> and thanks to Eric for sharing it with us via Patreon. So basically what happened is they published a T-Rex skeleton, which has been well known for a while, but hadn't been published as a full description before. This T-Rex is nicknamed Scotty, and we may have even talked about Scotty in the past. It's a pretty, like I said, well-known T-Rex. It's been in the literature before, along with that nickname, because it was nicknamed back in the 90s. And from that, you can probably guess that the nickname is not after the lead author, Scott Persons, because back when Scotty was nicknamed, Scott Persons was definitely not a paleontologist. He was probably in elementary school <laughs> because it was originally found in 1991 and the excavation started in 1994. And that was when the nickname actually got applied to it, apparently because the people who were digging it up drank a nice bottle of scotch and they thought it was good luck. <laughs> Scotty after scotch. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. It was found in southwest Saskatchewan, Canada, and it's the first T-Rex that was ever found in the province. I'm not sure if there's been any found since. Might still be the only one. I found an article written in 1994 that said, quote, it could take scientists up to a year to separate the fossil remains from the inside of the rock, <laughs> end quote. But it took more like 25 years for them <laughs> fully. They were optimistic. Yeah, exactly. I like that it was up to a year. Like, we know it won't take longer than a year. Like, that would be crazy. It's not that hard to get it out. But, you know, other priorities pop up. And it turned out to be very difficult rock to work with very hard. And you don't want to damage the fossil, so you have to go slow and methodically. Luckily, though, it did pay off. It's 
as they put it, extremely large and relatively complete, with roughly 65% of the T-Rex remains fossilized. Good. Yeah. They found a femur, the hips, lots of vertebrae, including like most of the tail and a fair amount of neck, most of the skull, and a lot of other little bits and pieces. But unfortunately, they didn't find any hands, which is a bummer because recently we've been talking to people about T-Rex and how really we don't know that much about their hands. Mm. <laughs> like we're not even really certain if they only had two digits. Like we're pretty sure they only had two digits. Oh, but really? With the f- very few number of hand bones that we found, like we're not really positive about it. And we don't really know the relative size of the fingers and stuff because we have a, a pretty good record of the skull sizes. So that's kind of how we base like the nano tyrannus debate versus the T-Rex, all that. A lot of that's based on the skulls, but the hands are really missing. And it's one of the most interesting parts of T-Rex. Like everybody always thinks about the little hands mm-hmm. and short arms. But so all those memes could be wrong. Yeah, they, or they could, you know, maybe need some adjustment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it looks like one of the claws, for example, might be much bigger than the other. And usually they're depicted as almost the exact same size. So I really want to see some good T-Rex hands. But, you know, most people are more excited about a skull. I understand. Unfortunately, in this case, they did find a pretty complete skull. When it's all put together, it's about 13 meters or 43 feet long, which makes it about three feet longer than Sue, and thus all the titles about it being the new largest T-Rex ever described. It was bound to happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, records are made to be broken, right? They estimated that it weighed about 8,800 kilograms or about 19,400 pounds. Pretty huge. We're talking about more than nine tons. That's just crazy. They did histology on the fibula, and they found that it was a skeletally mature individual, and they estimate that it was over 30 years old. For comparison, Sue is about 28. So a little bit older, a little bit bigger. I think Sue was also considered to be skeletally mature, so that's not a big difference, but... Dinosaurs sure live different lives from humans. Yeah, right. Thinking about human 28 and 30-year-olds and the size and also a don't think we have as rough of lives. (laughs) No, that's very true. They did find quite a few pathologies on Scotty. For example, they found three damaged vertebrae in the tail, which in one of the articles, they said maybe it got bit by another T-Rex or something that messed it up. There's also damage on its face, which again might be from like sparring with other T-Rex individuals. And they had an incompletely healed rib So I wonder that might be related to the cause of death potentially because it didn't fully heal. Mm -hmm. But that's pretty common in T-Rex to see broken ribs from them kind of belly flopping because eventually you trip when you're that big. Right. They got nothing to break their fall. Yeah, but tiny hands. It's a long way to fall and they weigh 19,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. That hurts. (laughs) Scotty also has the thickest leg of any T-Rex ever found which is what gives it the title of the heaviest known T-Rex and therefore probably heaviest terrestrial predator of all time with the possible exception of Spinosaurus. They actually talked about that quite a bit in the paper. Like, is this the heaviest land predator ever found? And then it's like, well, it's probably the heaviest, but we have so little remains of Spinosaurus that we can't really say for sure. And then whether or not Spinosaurus was quadrupedal kind of screws up the math because even if its femur is bigger, if Spinosaurus is leaning on its arms, it might not really work out. So even if the estimate of 8,800 kilograms and 19,400 pounds is less than some estimates of Sue, this one's definitely a heavier T-Rex than Sue. 
because if you apply the same mass, like the same sort of scaling principle of the femur to Sue, you get a lighter weight. So I know there have been estimates of Sue that are like over 10,000 kilograms, but if you apply that same sort of math that they're using on Sue to get that higher number, you'd get an even higher number for Scotty. So Scotty definitely wins over Sue <laughs> in terms of weight. The only question is whether or not it's heavier than any Spinosaurus. In the histology, they also found that there's some bone that looks like medullary bone. So Scotty could be a female. It's always confusing. Yeah, unless you find an egg inside of it. <laughs> you true. don't know. And one thing I found very interesting in the article is they said that some bones in the skull and vertebrae weren't fused, which previously, looking at similar dinosaurs, has been used as evidence that the dinosaur was skeletally immature. But we're almost certain that Scotty is skeletally mature based on some other bones that are fused and the lags are really closely spaced together at the edge so it doesn't look like it's growing anymore. Plus it's in its 30s. <laughs> it's one of the oldest theropods that we've seen so it seems like it must be skeletally mature by definition but then there are these things that we use as evidence for not being skeletally mature so it, it might kind of throw into question some of those assumptions about whether or not all dinosaurs eventually had their vertebrae fused and by fused i don't mean fused together but fused within the parts there's kind of the arch and then the centrum those aren't necessarily fully fused in scotty if you want to see scotty it's stored at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum, and it might have already been on display. I thought I saw something saying that it went on display in like 2012 or something, but on phys.org, they say a new exhibit is going to open in May featuring Scotty. So they might have briefly taken it down, maybe for doing this kind of work on it for the description. I'm not sure. That sounds familiar. I think we covered something about this. Yeah. But I can't remember the details. <laughs> it's hard to keep track. But in any event, in May... If you're in Saskatchewan, it'd be a good place to swing by. Check out Scotty. So before we talk about the fossil that was found with an egg inside of it, some quick updates. Washington State is working on getting an official dinosaur for the state. Suchiosaurus rex. It's the first and only dinosaur found in Washington. It was found in 2012 at Suchia Island State Park. And they found part of a left femur. Based on the name, you could probably guess it's a theropod. It possibly came from around what's now California, and you can see the fossil at the Burke Museum. The bill was introduced in the state house, and we'll follow up if we hear more. It's interesting they say that it might have come from California. Yeah, I don't know, migrated or moved. The details were unclear. Hmm. We've got a quick update on Montana and the ownership rights of fossils. So the Montana State Senate passed the bill 50 to 0 that says that fossils are a property's surface rights, not mineral rights, unless there's a contract that specifically says otherwise. And just a quick reminder, the House passed the bill 100 to 0 in February. So next up, government Steve Bullock will need to sign. Sounds like it's going to pass. I think so. I believe that state senates have the same sort of supermajority rules where you can't veto something if you have more than two-thirds of a yes vote. And mm. I think 50 to 0 qualifies. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Everybody agrees. Yeah. And last, Colorado Northwestern Community College has a new dinosaur, Walter the Hadrosaur. Walter's about 75 million years old, and volunteers, students, and scientists all helped dig him up over the last five years. There's a mural of Walter near the main entrance of the college, and it sounds like Walter's going on display soon. So if you're in the area, check it out. Nice. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. 
As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Before we get into our interview with Alita, I want to give a quick background on her research because we kind of just dive deep into it. We got really excited. (laughs) We did. And we figured we could cover a little bit about it in the news anyway. So Alita and Jingmei O'Connor, as well as a bunch of other co-authors, published in Nature Communications this amazing find of a new dinosaur that died with an unlaid egg inside of it, which is a first ever for an an anti-ornithine. It may be a first ever in terms of dinosaurs in general. I think that's what Alita said. Yeah, we've definitely seen eggs near dead dinosaurs, but like, I don't think we could tell definitively that it was inside the dinosaur like we can in this case. So like most amazing enantiornithine finds, <laughs> this one was from China, and it's in the typical sort of Chinese squished bird posture. So it's kind of like smashed back, almost like the cartoon version of running into like a sheet of glass or something where like the heads turn sideways and the arms are up at its side and his legs are like splayed out. So it's like smashed or like that cut out when you jump through a wall in a cartoon, that sort of pose (laughs) is the one that the the bird is in. And they named the bird Ava Maya. You know, it's like bird mother sort of thing. And we'll talk about why in the interview. But one other thing that I want to add before we get into the interview is that when they did histology on the egg, they found that there was a cuticle on the outside of the egg. And that's a structure that forms about an hour before an egg is laid. And it's typically on eggs that are in humid and infection-prone environments as a sort of defense mechanism for the egg. 
And so basically the fact that there was this cuticle there not only tells us something about the environment, but also tells us that really this egg was on its way out. <laughs> it wasn't just an egg inside the bird. This was a fully grown egg that was about to be laid. And then for one reason or another, wasn't laid. So without further ado, now on to our interview with Alita. We're joined today by Alita Bayuel. She is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, also known as IVPP, and her research focuses on microscopic structure of dinosaur bone and tissues using histology, and she's also studied modern alligators and birds to learn about dinosaur tissue and biomechanics. So first I have to ask, because on your website, it says that you grew up in Tahiti, but Tahiti is a volcanic island and there definitely aren't any dinosaurs there. So how did you get into studying dinosaurs? So, okay, first of all, the volcano in Tahiti is dead. Just FYI, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just FYI. No, I'm I'm kidding, of course. But um, I don't really know. I just like them since I'm a kid. I just really like uh, life, animals, plants, anything uh, maybe because in Tahiti, right, all the kids growing up there were always outside, almost never indoors. Uh, so I don't know. I just always liked life. And also, uh, yeah, so I don't know why. I can't tell you why. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. We all like dinosaurs and yeah, they're just so cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but I think it's said that like you actually studied paleontology in Tahiti. Is that right? So I, I did my first two years of undergrad in Tahiti, right? Because the third year, when you get your degree, actually, they didn't have the it open. So you had to go to France to finish your degree. Hmm. So for during the first two years, I had, I think, two classes of paleontology. I think there was invertebrate paleontology and then the more general one. And yeah, so I... I started paleontology at the University of French Polynesia, but it wasn't the focus of the degree, right? Gotcha. That's really cool that they had paleontology at a small school like that. Yeah. But then, so I went to France and I did an ecology degree because there is no paleontology undergraduate degree in France, right? It's either Uh biology or geology. So I picked biology and then for the PhD, I went to Montana. Gotcha. Because I, I already knew. So basically, when I was 17, no, when I was 16 years old, I emailed Jack Horner. Uh, I said, um, you know, hello, I'm, my name is Alita. I'm from Tahiti. I'd like to come on a, a dig, a dinosaur dig. And then uh, he didn't reply for one year. I was like, <laughs> oh, it's okay. Then a year later, I sent him another email when I'm 17. And I say, hi, I emailed you last year. Um, I don't know if you remember me. I would love to try to come on one of your dinosaur dicks. And then he said, Alita, I really admire your persistence. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so, yes, please uh, come to one of our dinosaur dicks. I'll get you in contact with some of my students. Uh, then I came to Montana when I was uh, maybe 18. Then I always knew I wanted to do a PhD in Montana. So it was like uh, a few years later then. I asked Jack, can I do a PhD? And he said, yes, apply. And then then it worked out. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. I know. I know. It's more than great. It's like, for real? This is real? <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And the path just from Tahiti to Paris to Montana to Beijing is just like 
such an unusual like i don't think anyone has ever lived in those four places in that order before ever <laughs> yeah i i don't think so either but i i don't know i guess you you it just happens right yeah uh, like you can't plan where you will live i don't think yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially when it comes to following the paleontology you kind of you just go where it is yes exactly cool so I guess we should talk about your new discovery. <laughs> okay, sure. I guess we could. <laughs> it's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Some of our listeners were immediately actually just reached out to us and they were like, I hope you're going to interview her because this is an awesome paper. And I was like, well, actually. Oh, that's so nice. That's so great. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. So now... I guess, obviously, you, you talked about how you spent a lot of time outside, but now you're more focused on the lab side of things, right? Is that right? Yeah, pretty much now I'm always um, in the lab. I haven't been in the field uh, like for a long time, in many years, and really um, I focus on you know samples that are already collected in the museum collections, and then I work in the lab because um, I guess it would be really hard to have both a field program and a lab program, hmm. but I hope in the future I can combine them. But right now it's more, it, I'm definitely a lab person for sure. Gotcha. So is that, how did you end up with the Ava Maya then? Was that somebody else collected it or did you find it just like laying around on a shelf somewhere? You know, so when I became a postdoc at IVPP last year, I was just, you know, Jingmei O'Connor. She's <laughs> my postdoc advisor. Uh, she's the person who invited me to go to China. And uh, anyway, so we were in her office and looking through a lot of specimens, right? Boxes of uh, specimens from the Gansu assemblage from uh, northwestern China. You know, the famous, uh, the most famous area in China for birds is the Zhehou Biota, right? Northeast. Mm -hmm. But this is uh, in northwest Gansu province. And it's, um, you know, almost the same age. Oh, so wow. it's it's becoming to be also like a famous place to find fossil birds, but it's less famous than the Jehol. So we were looking at a lot of specimens collected from uh, about 10 years ago from the Gansu province, right? People from IVPP and other researchers. And then we just, uh, you know, Jingmei, she just opened that box and she was like, oh, I remember this thing. What, what is this thing again? <laughs> and then we both look at it and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I, I was like, that's bone. And she said, no, wait, that's not bone. It's too thin. I was like, but that's that's so weird. And she's like, maybe it's a soft tissue that mineralized secondarily. And I was like, man, I don't know. And it it was really flat, right? And there's lo there was lots of glue on it. So it was really shiny. And we just were like, we have no clue what it is. We just looked at it for like a, a, a few minutes. We're like, well, let's just take a small piece of it and cut it and f see see what it is so that's how it happened <laughs> wow <laughs> and then was that the piece that ended up being part of the egg yes well yeah that was a piece of the egg that we sampled but we didn't know it was an egg like <laughs> so yeah <laughs> how did you figure out it was an egg at what point in that process do you know basically after so i i extracted a small fragment of the egg, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, brought it to um, Zhang Shukang. She's a co-author on the study, right? Mm -hmm. And she also makes uh, all the ground sections for the IVPP. So she she made slides and then 
a few days later, we look at it and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> is this an egg? <laughs> and and we're like, I, we don't know, is it? So then, so I just, I kind of let it go for a few days and I think about it again. And then I was thinking at night, right? I was like, I, I think that's an egg. <laughs> and really, I'm not joking. I was up thinking, this is an egg. I know it. And then the next morning, I am not making this up. This is truth. The next morning, I get a text message from Zhang Shukong, and she's like, yeah, I think this is an egg. And I was like, <laughs> see, I knew it. I knew it. And then uh, <laughs> and then we just, you know, then it all started to be crazy because we're like, well, if it's an egg, then that's like the first bird that was found with an unlaid egg, mm -hmm. right? And then it should have medullary bone. And then we just kept finding a lot of other things, like at every step of the way, just we just kept finding new things. So that was really, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that's pretty crazy. So I know like during your talk at SVP, you mentioned that it might have died being basically egg bound, like the egg got stuck and that might have killed it. Is that still kind of the leading hypothesis? So basically... You know, when you have a flattened structure, so it used to be, of course, in 3D, and then now it's all flattened in 2D, mm -hmm. right? And we only sampled a very small piece of the egg. So there's two ground sections, and there's contradicting data. On one ground section, it really looks like it's a pathological egg. It's an egg, multi-layered, and usually when this happens, so in, in some living birds, right? So multi-layering means that the egg was inside the oviduct for too long. And then you can also have females that die when they're egg bound, right? Mm -hmm. Due to this retention. So one slide really says this. And then the other slide says something that maybe it could have been. So this image, so this mirror image pattern we see that I describe it in the, we describe it in the paper, right? So with the multiple layers, it looks like the sediments can also create and mimic this pattern. So a pattern of multi-layers, right? When you, you, you squish some layers together, compact them, but there's also another pathology. So showing the egg looks like it was really thin. Hmm. So uh, there are multiple lines of evidence that suggests it wasn't a normal egg, but there's also some contradicting data. So I would say at this minute, it would make sense to say the most logical hypothesis right now is to say it could have been egg bound. But I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, when we reanalyze the egg, it might be a different interpretation because we need to look at the entire egg. And that was very difficult to do with the CT scans. You know, we CT scanned it because we don't want to cut the whole egg. Right. Mm -hmm. So we CT scanned it and uh, it's hard to see. So there's uh, a lot more to do with that egg in the future. But we can definitely say that the egg was inside the female bird when it died. And the egg binding hypothesis is really not a bad hypothesis. So yeah. cool. So with the uh, Ava Maya, how did you choose the name? The full name. So I so I, I thought about this name for a while. I came up with a bunch of different uh, options. And then, you know, I thought about, so it's a mother bird, right? Mm -hmm. And also, I really like the name Mayasora, mm -hmm. which yeah. is, uh, you know, the hadrosaur from Montana, named by, again, Jack Horner. Sorry, I mentioned him again. He was my PhD <laughs> advisor. I have to mention him, you know? <laughs> that makes sense. So, 
so uh, there's Mayasora, and I like that name. It means good mother lizard. So I was like, oh, maybe I can do something like this, like AV Maya, so good mother bird. And then for the species name, I wanted to honor, you know, a female scientist. And, you know, Mary Schweitzer, you know, when I was younger, when I first started undergrad, I remember opening this magazine and I see you know, soft tissues preserved in a dinosaur by Mary Schweitzer. And, and I just, and I remember I was shocked. <laughs> Never in my life, I, I just kept re- reading the article over and over again. And I was like, that's just not possible. Soft <laughs> tissues in a dinosaur? No way. There's no way. And I was just like, I can't believe that's really, and it really like marked me, you know, I think until now, right? And then I would never think I would ever meet her or work with her. And, and then I did, you know, I, I've been working with Mary Schweitzer. I know her. And so, and she has been working on, you know, the evolution of medullary bone. Mm-hmm. She found it in T-Rex, right? So I thought that's really the perfect, you know, species name would be Abimaya Schweitzer because, you know, that also that specimen has medullary bone. And it's the first one that's uh, the first fossil ever found with an egg and medullary bone in, as- in association. So, uh, it really validates, you know, the that it's important to study medullary bone from an evolutionary perspective, right? So I thought that really honoring Mary Schweitzer would be the only thing to do, I guess. So, so and uh, that's so that's how it happened. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. What was her reaction yeah. to the name? Well, so I, I presented the the study at SVP in October, right mm-hmm. last year, and I didn't even tell her. Like, I, <laughs> so I presented it, then I tell all the audience guys, I'm going, we're going to name this after Mary Schweitzer, and then uh, so I was like, I haven't told Mary, and that was true. Um, <laughs> then I was like, oh no, I think that somebody's going to go tell her before <laughs> me. I don't want that to happen. So then after my talk. I emailed her and I said, hey, Mary, I didn't tell you, but guess what? I named the species after you. <laughs> and then she was like, what, what, what? And I sent her um, I sent her a picture and she was like, I don't believe it. That's that's crazy. She was so happy. And uh, yeah, so that's how I told her. I mean, I didn't <laughs> tell her like in person, but I told her by email. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. funny. I was actually kind of wondering because we were watching that talk. I was wondering like, there's a chance she's just in the audience right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually emailed her before going to SVP. I said, oh, you're going to be at SVP because if you are, you should come to my talk. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and she said, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not coming. So oh, okay. it's really too bad. I really, <laughs> seriously, I really wanted to surprise her. <laughs> I was hope I was hoping she would be in the audience and I would surprise her. I, I really, yeah, I was like, that would be so much fun. But nope, didn't happen. But that's fine. <laughs> that would have been great if she was in the audience and you found yeah. her and you just point to her. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you tell her, I really want you to sit in the front row. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wanted to tell her, I wanted to say, first of all, is Mary Schweitzer in the audience? <laughs> yeah. No. So. That's really great. So. You talked a little bit about doing like the histology on the egg, and I know you do a lot of histology. What is the process like in doing, you know, because like you said, you don't want to damage the fossil or just kind of destroy the whole thing examining it. How did you go about doing histology on such a, you know, important fossil? Well, so there is, you know, that's the problem with histology, right? That's the only problem. 
is that <laughs> with, you know, with the data that you get, you also get destructive sampling. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, if we had known it was an egg, right, at, at the beginning, we probably might not have uh, sampled it right away. Or maybe we, we would have tried to perhaps do some synchrotron scanning. Yeah, but we, we, we took a really small piece. So it's fine. However, you know, to be honest, we if we had known it was an egg, we perhaps would have tried something else first, you know, before histology. Mm -hmm. But really, some of the major advances that have been made in paleontology for a few decades now is thanks to histology. Really, like without this, this method, we wouldn't know that bone cells can preserve, you know, osteons. We wouldn't know that tissues can preserve for millions of years. We wouldn't know dinosaurs were actually more, probably more warm-blooded than cold-blooded. We wouldn't be able to assess their, you know, whether they're juveniles or adults. So histology is, is you know, it's a problem that there is destructive sampling, but really nothing is perfect. So sometimes you have to take risks mm -hmm. and it, it pays out sometimes. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, you can't really get the detail anyway. So even if you did like synchrotron level of <laughs> non-destructive sampling, it, it would be really hard to still see those different layers of eggshell and all that. Yeah, and ex exactly. And even with the synchrotron, you know, sometimes your samples have to be really small mm -hmm. to fit in the synchrotron. So you would still have to do some destructive sampling, right? So this problem is not easily solvable. So yeah, so we, we had to, to histologically section it for sure. But let's say perhaps we would have tried other methods before, uh, you know, histologically sampling it. But I mean, it's something that had to be done and uh, we don't regret it at all. It really <laughs> said a lot of things. You know, we found all these layers. We found the cuticle and really, if we hadn't sectioned it, we wouldn't have known it was an egg. So it would have stayed in that box for who knows how, how much longer. So, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And then, so I guess I should ask, because you, you hint at the size of it. How big is Ava Maya? So it's probably about 15 centimeters tall. So it had the probably the, the size of a, a sparrow. Okay. Yeah. It's like there's been smaller, <laughs> yeah, but it's still yeah. pretty small. <laughs> there's been smaller and bigger, but yeah. I think, yeah, that's pretty, there's nothing unusual about the size. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. I want to uh, geek out a little bit on your histology because on your website, you have all these different types of histology listed. And I feel like I have the simplified version of histology in my head. Mm -hmm. And it's just like one process where you cut out a little piece of bone and you kind of grind it down. And then maybe you add a little bit of fluorescence to it when you're looking at it on a microscope. But you have like all these, you have something called paraffin histology and staining modified for fossil tissues. What is that? The, the most common method to use in a paleohistology, right? So you just make a petrographic ground section. So you take your fossil bone or your extant uh, bone tissue, mm -hmm. and then you uh, you don't demineralize it. You just keep it with its, you know, calcium, and then you embed it in resin, you cut it, you grind it down, and then you make a standard ground section. But for extant tissues, so like uh, the tissues of living species, you can also demineralize embed in paraffin, and then you can cut a much thinner, right? Let's say standard ground section is about 100 microns. 
But with the paraffin, you can make them at five microns uh, or, or thinner, also four or three microns. But the standard is five, right? Wow. And then you can stain these tissues uh, and, you know, you have very beautiful, you know, staining that shows the different like bright colors. You can see the differences between, uh, like, let's say, bone and cartilage, right? And you can also stain ground sections, but it's not great staining. The slides are usually too thick, so it's much easier to just stain paraffin sections. And, um, you know, Mary Schweitzer, she developed this method, right? She just applied this paraffin method to fossil tissues. So you can now cut demineralized bone tissue Actually, not just bone tissue, any type of fossil tissue you have, you can demineralize it and then uh, embed in paraffin at cut at five microns. And, you know, the that method is published by Mary Schweitzer and colleagues, right, in 2016. And so it, you know, the staining worked on different types of tissues in, uh, in T-Rex. Hmm. So this now, uh, that's one of the reasons why I went to IVPP, because I went to Mary's lab. And uh, her technician, she's really amazing, Wang Xia Zheng. So Mary and Wang Xia Zheng have been working together for a while. And so Wang Xia really trained me for this method. We'll all call her Megan. And so Megan taught me everything. And then I moved to IVPP. And that's one of the reasons why I'm there. I set up this method there. I hope I can uh, make it more widespread in paleontology. Mm -hmm. So to, to make the staining Histochemical staining of fossil tissues, something that hopefully we can do in a lot of labs in the world, not just, you know, Mary Schweitzer's lab or uh, the lab at IVPP. So that's what I'm hoping to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, IVPP is a really great place to start spreading that. Yeah. There's so many yeah. specimens. <laughs> that's for sure. So is that what you did with Ava Maya? Did you use that technique? No, Ava Maya, we didn't do that. No. Because we didn't really need to at the at this point in time. Gotcha. So I've mean, yeah, we just did standard ground sections. So then I also want to ask, you've studied hadrosaur dental batteries. What did you learn while studying those? Well, my goal wasn't to study the hadrosaur dental batteries. So at the Museum of the Rockies, right, I was looking at the a lot of cranial and skull tissues of hadrosaurs. So embryos, nestlings and, you know, juveniles and adults. And uh, so I, I made some slides of a, you know, um, hadrosaur embryo. So I was looking for some specific tissues that you can find in the skulls of living birds, right? I was looking for them in the skulls of hadrosaurs. Mm. And I was also looking, you know, in between the teeth, but I wasn't specifically looking at uh, the hadrosaur dental batteries. But then, you know, I was talking to Aaron LeBlanc, which is the expert on hadrosaur dental batteries and is really good dental histologist. I really admire his work. And we were talking together at a conference and, uh, you know, I told him, oh, I sectioned some embryos. I don't know if you're interested. And then and we we talked and and we were both, you know, interested really in this uh, subject. So that's how we we worked together on this project. But, you know, it's Aaron's project. So basically, in big summary, we figured out that the teeth of hadrosaurs were resorbed as, uh, in addition to being ground down, and they were not shed. And also, Aaron describes very well in his, you know, in the paper, right, that um, it looks like also in between each teeth, they were 
you know, soft tissue attachments, and that is not seen in any living vertebrate, right? The the, the <laughs> tissues are in between the bone and the teeth, not in between the teeth as well as in between the the the, the teeth and the bone. So they're just really crazy. <laughs> Hadrosaurs are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so their teeth are actually connected to one another. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, it looks that's like weird. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While also being resorbed and yeah. ground down. And, and then they like they fall out in very interesting patterns too while that's all going on. It's pretty yep. crazy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's <is> pretty weird. <laughs> if our listeners want to learn more about you and your work or upcoming work or anything like that, where's the best place for people to find you online? I don't really use social media or Twitter or so I would suggest just um, my website and my email. Cool. Yeah, your yeah. website's really good. I appreciate you keep it up to date because you already yeah. have Ava Maya on there and everything. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I was so excited. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. It was like one of the most requested interviews we've had in a while. <laughs> no way. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah definitely. People are really? excited. Yeah. <laughs> that's so awesome it makes me so happy oh my god that's so nice thanks again alita that was an amazing interview and you've only been in china for one year now so i imagine you'll find many more <laughs> amazing things and we'll be begging you to come back on the show soon to tell us about them <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, in size of a source, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was an Oviraptorsaurian theropod. It lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now China. And it was probably an herbivore, possibly an omnivore. It was described in 2002 by Xu and others, and it was based on a skull that was found in the Yixiang Formation. The name means incisor lizard. The skull's about 3.9 inches, 10 centimeters long. Oh, it's really small. Mm-hmm. And it had a long snout that was about half the length of the skull and a slender lower jaw. It had rodent-like front teeth, they were mm. large and flat, and they were worn down in a similar way to herbivorous dinosaur teeth. Weird. Yeah, but it had small peg-like teeth in the back. It actually just had a lot of teeth. And the skull had some features that showed a relationship with therizinosaurs, which Garrett talked about in the beginning of the show with the new therizinosaur, those weird dinosaurs. Yeah, and this is another small one that looks like it has some herbivorous-like traits, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, it might be related to therizinosaurs. 
Balanoff and others scanned the skull in 2009 and found that it had primitive characteristics, like the teeth that may show the similarities between oviraptorids and birds. It had primitive characteristics, like the teeth that may show the similarities between oviraptorids and birds are because of convergent evolution and were not shared derived characters. In size of Vasaurus was estimated to be about 3.3 feet or 1 meters long, and it may have been feathered based on relatives. The type species is Incisivosaurus gothieri, and the species name is in honor of Dr. Jacques Gauthier, known for classifying phylogeny. There's some speculation that Incisivosaurus is synonymous with Protarchaeopteryx, but we need more fossils to know for sure. Oh, really? It's similar to like an Archaeopteryx-type dinosaur. Just a weird dinosaur. Well, if most of what we know about it is the skull, then I could see how it's hard to say a lot of these details. This is a fascinating little dinosaur with this big front <laughs> sort of buck teeth, sort of like a beaver dinosaur or something. Hmm. So strange. And our fun fact of the day is that cassowaries appear to use their casks for thermoregulation, so some non-avian dinosaurs may also have done the same thing with their head ornamentation. So a cask is technically a helmet, but in birds, the same word is used to mean sort of the, the growth or like decoration on top of the head where a helmet would be. Interesting. So yeah. not just for display. No. So like cassowaries have this thing that they call a cask. And there was a recent article written by Danielle Eastwick and others published in Scientific Reports where they looked into cassowaries specifically kind of with the aim of learning a little bit about dinosaurs too. And what they pointed out is that cassowaries are pretty much entirely covered in black feathers and they live in tropical environments, which really heats them up, obviously. So they need a way to cool down. So there's been this hypothesis that maybe the cask helps with that. So what they did is they took an infrared camera and they pointed it at a cassowary when it was in a bunch of different temperatures. And what they found is that when it was cold out, the cask was basically the same temperature as the ambient environment. But when it got warmer out, it used its cask like a radiator, pumping like extra warm blood into the cask to sort of cool off. So, I mean, obviously that means that some of these hadrosaurs that had big crests on their head might have been doing something similar. Maybe they were also pumping blood up there when it was hot. And we do know that some dinosaurs, too, had black feathers based on the melanosomes. So they might have had similar issues, heating up in the sun, needing to cool down, pump some blood up to that head ornamentation as a radiator could work. Interesting. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us. You don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community on Patreon at patreon.com slash I Thanks for listening. And until next time. Good day, boom.